do the thing that we came here for. Father, we thank you for your grace. Um, We need all of it. Father, I pray that you'd give life to our souls uh, through your spirit, through your word as we spend time together. Um, Jesus, we thank you for pursuing us and rescuing us, for doing the work necessary to reconcile us to our Father. We thank you that you are our rescuing king and our, our older brother, the firstborn of a really big and growing family. And we thank you that we're in that family all by your grace. Father, we need your help at all times and in every way. We need that now to see you for who you are and to understand your word and to respond to it in humility and in joy. Uh, So Father, please do these things for us by your grace and through your spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right. So Mark Twain once said, The two most important days in your life are the day you were born and the day you find out why. We're all like, all right, one down, got it. You were born, got one, got one. How do you feel you're doing on the second? Like if somebody asked you, have you figured out the why or are you figuring out the why? um, How do you feel you're doing? How do you feel you're doing? Almost 400 years ago, a group of pastors piled into a meeting space in London, determined to help people find out the why from a biblical perspective. They just wanted to bring everything that the scripture has to say about life to bear on that one question. So one of the documents that they wrote is known now as the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It's a series of 107 questions and answers. Do you know what the first question in that document is? That's Twain's question, right? That's, they're saying the same thing. They're asking the same thing. It's, it's the why, the day you find out why. So since you knew the first question, you know the first answer. Do you know the answer? What is the chief end of man? There you go. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now, three generations prior to that meeting in London, so those dudes, grandfathers and grandmothers, Uh, Their generation in Europe had experienced what we refer to today as the Protestant Reformation. That movement is often summarized by five theological statements, and one of those five statements is um, soli deo gloria, or SDG. And if you're a music lover, particularly classical music, you know that when Johann Sebastian Bach or George Frederick Handel would compose a new piece of music, at the bottom of that paper, along with their names, they would write SDG. This is what they were writing. And that's Latin for to God alone be the glory. This morning, um, like Grant said, like Michael said, we begin a three-week series on the glory of God. Three weeks is way too short, okay? But you gave a lot of input, so we have places to go. We could spend 30 weeks here, but we're gonna spend three. And I think today, what we will see is how Twain's The Day You Find Out Why is inseparably connected to God's glory. You can't answer his question without, without considering God's glory. So how are we gonna get there today? What are we gonna focus in on for God's glory? First of all, glory explained. What is glory? 
What is God's glory? And then glory everywhere. We're going to see in scripture that um, the writers of scripture tell us that God's glory is displayed everywhere. Glory explained, glory everywhere. But there's a problem. The storyline of scripture talks about a glory exchange. That's the word that it chooses to use. So we'll consider glory exchanged and then glory embodied in Jesus and glory experienced. So if you like an outline or you want to know where we're going, that's it right there. Glory explained everywhere, exchanged, embodied, and experienced. So let's start with glory explained. The Hebrew language has a small grouping of words for glory. The primary word that uh, the, the Hebrew language uses is, and I'm not even going to try, I have no guttural bill. I can't vocalize, so here it is. Here it is. Kabod, kavod, K-A-B-O-D, if you want to write it down. That word just simply means, here it is, a simple definition, heavy. That's what it means, weighty, weighty. Um, It's used literally in the Old Testament just a handful of times. Normally it's figurative. And to be completely honest with you, the literal uses are kind of funny, kind of, I guess. But you wouldn't want to be written about this way because when it's used literally, it's actually talking about a dude's body weight. So coming through the end of the holiday season, you were feeling pretty glorious. And then you got on the scale and like, wow, that's a lot of glory. Like that's actually what the word means. Like there's a lot of glory in this room. We could put a scale rate down here and measure just how much glory is present, but most of you wouldn't like that. It's used literally of a guy named Eli. He was a priest. He was old. He was an old man and he was really heavy. He was fat. He was overweight. I mean, Eli even would have not been able to squeak through the Navy's BMI. Like, he's just, he was gone. In 1 Samuel 4.18, the word kavod is actually used to describe his body, right? Literally, he's heavy, weighty, okay? So that's what it means. But like I said, normally it's used figuratively. So a wealthy person was said to be kavod or heavy in riches, In other words, what the authors would be communicating about this wealthy person is there is an excess of wealth, almost an immeasurable excess of wealth. They're heavy in in riches. But that word wouldn't just be used for wealth, right? We could be talking about excellence. There could be a heaviness of excellence. Like, that was good. That was better. That was was really good. That was heavy good. Um, Beauty. We We could think of beauty in that way. Um, not just a little bit beautiful, but you would say like, man, she, that is overwhelmingly beautiful. Like take your breath away, beautiful. That'd be kavod, like heavy, just gorgeous, beautiful, breathtaking. And that's why a guy named Edward Lee, actually when he defines glory, that's all he says about it. He says, um, he says, where to go, where to go, where to go. He says, the weight of all that God is. That's a simple definition for glory. Glory is the weight of all that God is. That's a good definition. That's a good definition. Uh, But he goes on to say, glory is not just the weight of all that God is. Glory is the infinite excellency of the divine essence. So take a breath. Let's just, so he's saying the infinite excellency, right? Breathtaking, almost indescribable, heavy, beautiful. Like I can start explaining to you how I feel about this beauty, but then I run out of words. Like infinite, immeasurable excellency um, of the divine essence. Why don't we substitute the name or the word God for divine essence? That's what he's saying. The infinite excellence of the divine essence, the infinite excellency of God. 
The Greeks had just one word for glory. That's doxa. Um, if you just Google search real quick, there are churches in the States that are, that are named Doxa Church. That's why that's, it's in their name. Like, hey, we care about the glory of God. Doxa means reputation of character. Doxa is the true reality of who someone is. That's what, that's what glory is. It's character or reputation, whether it's acknowledged or not, right? So glory, God's glory is, it exists, and it's not diminished by whether or not we see it or acknowledge it. It just is. But there's another piece of glory, like glory is more than just existence. Glory is also the evidencing of that existence. In other words, glory are, is, is the visible evidence of character, right? Um, what would be a good example? We think of a bride on her wedding day. She's, she's in her glory, right? But before she's seen, she's just in a room, maybe with her, with her wedding party, just waiting for the moment to begin. There's a lot of glory in there. Nobody's seen her yet. It hasn't been revealed yet, but that doesn't diminish what's going on. Like she's glorious. And then the doors open and everybody stops looking at the goofy dudes up front, thankfully, and all attention goes, boom, a glory moment, right? That's, that's what's going on here. Glory is the existence. God is glorious and it's, glory is not diminished whether or not we see it and celebrate it, but then the evidences of that glory when the doors open, that's what it's getting at. So the Bible calls God the God of glory, the King of glory, and the glorious Father in the New Testament. That's who he is. So glory is seen in the revelation or the visible manifestations of his true nature or character. That's glory. But we only catch glimpses of that glory, right? We only catch glimpses. We only catch glimpses. Kind of like... you're driving around, you're out for your run, shouldn't be running with your phone anyway, but you're out running with your phone and you see a stunning Okinawa sunset or a just breathtaking Okinawa sunset or the skies are just beautiful. And what do you do? You're like, I'm gonna capture that beauty on my, my high-speed iPhone camera. And you take the picture and then you look at it and you're like ready for Instagram. But then you look back at the sky and you look back, you're like, that's not, that's not even it. Like you, you can't capture the glory in your phone. It's impossible. It's, it's too glorious. It's too beautiful. Your camera can't handle it. That's what's going on. We only catch glimpses. What are those glimpses? Every breathtaking moment of beauty in this lifetime is a glimpse of God's glory. Everything, every beautiful thing in this world is a shadow of the reality that is God's glory. But you know what's amazing? Even those shadows take your breath away, don't they? Shadows take your breath away. A beautiful piece of music, like just when we kill it, vocalizing, glorious. Tried, Grant. The first cry of a baby right, out, right after delivery, especially if it's yours, like glorious to tears, take your breath away, beautiful. First cry, sunrise, sunset, any act of selfless sacrifice, that's a shadow of, of that's, a, that's a glimpse of glory and it takes your breath away. But guys, it's just a shadow of God's glory. We can't handle it. We can't take anything more than a glimpse. I think it's interesting actually that we would use that phrase like take your breath away beautiful or take your breath away fill in the blank because if we walked that out, if you did get a full glimpse of that glory, it would keep your breath away permanently like you can't handle it. The shadows take your breath away. Glory. 
So let's give it a summary definition that we can work with moving forward. Let's just kind of combine what we learned from the Hebrew and the Greek and, and Edward Lee really helped us out. Glory is the weight of all that God is and the display of his infinite excellence. So glory is as he exists, but it's also the display or the evidencing of that glory. Glory is the weight of all that God is and the display of his infinite excellence. Now, let's just press pause though, because it's risky business giving glory a definition. Like, okay, got it. I understand glory because no, we don't. Like, okay, great. We have a couple words. We have vocabulary. We have a definition. So what? Like we're scratching the surface. And even if we have a partial handle on what glory is, we don't even begin to know the infinite glory of God. We can't comprehend. That's why a guy named Richard Mellick Jr. wrote this. He said, understanding the glory of God challenges all people. Its meaning is at once both blatantly obvious, right? We just took five minutes to talk through the blatantly obvious. It means heavy. It means reputation, beauty, right? Excellence. Its meaning is at once both blatantly obvious and mysteriously vague, Jonathan Edwards would write about the same thing this way. He says, we face a difficult reality. By our own power, we cannot come to know even the identity of the author of the universe, much less his purpose in making it. We need the one who made the universe to speak and inform us regarding his reasons for creating or else we will never fully understand why he did it. He has bad news for Mark Twain. Like you're not figuring out that why unless it's spoken into your life. You, you can't. And then this dude, Wolfhart Pannenberg. So if you're pregnant, write that name down. Wolfhart Pannenberg. That's a good middle name right there. He wrote this, he said, any, that's a glorious name, it's glory. Any, he said this, any intelligent attempt to talk about God, talk that is critically aware of its conditions and limitations, must begin and end with confession of the inconceivable majesty of God, which transcends all our concepts. So what's our confession? The confession is we are that cheap camera in the iPhone, right? It's beautiful, like we have capacity to see glory and appreciate it and even reflect it. We can post it up, but we can't capture it all in its fullness. We just are, are we would break. We, we can't do it and we can't do it on our own. So like, let's actually close the gap between profession and practice and let's take Wolfhart's advice and let's actually pray that we would see God's glory this way, um, that we would see him as transcendent over all of our concepts and that he would allow us to see him in his glory and that our lives would be increasingly shaped by that. So let's do that before we press any further, okay? Father, we just, we wanna ask for humility, uh, but we also need to ask that you would awaken our hearts because so many of us have grown used to thinking that we have a good definition for glory. We know what your glory is, we know who you are, but I pray that you would give us enough humility to recognize that we are, we're barely, barely scratching the surface and I pray that you would, you would, in allowing us even just more glimpses of your beauty and your infinite excellence this morning, awaken our hearts to your beauty, incline our hearts to you and to pursue you and to live for your glory and to find joy in you. But Father, we need your help for this. We, we would be fools to set out about this as some kind of intellectual exercise. It's not what this is. We need your help. So please open our eyes. Give us capacity to see and understand and to, to know life through your glory. We pray that you would do this by your spirit and through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so glory explained. How about glory everywhere? Where's the glory? 
The writers of the Psalm, here's Psalm 19.1, they write, the heavens declare the glory of God. Why do the heavens exist? Why do the moon, the stars, the sun, the galaxies, the planets, all of these breathtaking things exist? For one reason, to declare the glory of God. That Psalm goes on in verse four to say, their voice, the heaven's voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. So the heavens are yelling at us. They have one job. They know what it is. They know why they're created. And every day, every night, morning and evening, the heavens declare, they scream out, they shout, the one who made me is infinitely more beautiful than I am. He's infinitely more amazing. I am just a shadow of his reality. And what you can see with your naked eye takes your breath away. Look through a telescope, let that take your breath away. And you're still just scratching the surface of God's glory. The heavens declare the glory of God. It's not just the heavens, the earth too. Isaiah would write in Isaiah 6.3, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Do you know what comes next? The whole earth is full of his glory. If you live on planet earth, you face an inescapable reality. You cannot get away from evidences that point and shout and scream about God's glory. It is inescapable. The whole earth is full of his glory. It's not just the heavens. It's not just the earth. It's you guys. It's people. People are created to display God's glory. The writer of Genesis says that we're created in his image and likeness. That means we are created to reflect his glory. So God is glorious. He is the glory us one. We are created to be God glorifiers. And when you read that word glorify or glorifiers in scripture, it simply means this. To glorify something is to see it, right? To see it, to be in awe of it, to celebrate it, to enjoy it, to reflect it. And really, um, in the Greek, glorify means one simple thing, to enhance another's reputation. Not that you have control over your, their reputation. Not, you're not some kind of PR doctor spinning it or anything like that. It's not that. God is glorious no matter what we do or don't do with his glory. He's glorious. But to glorify him means that we speak in such a way and live in such a way, just like the, the, the heavens declare and the earth is full of, so that others hear that glory and see that glory and get just a glimpse, just a taste of that beauty and that excellence. That's what it means to glorify, to enhance his reputation. And that's why this command is all over scripture. Psalm 29, two says, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. He deserves it. That's who he is. To glorify him means that we say we say what is already true about him, we say it out loud, and our lives are shaped by this reality, right? That's what it means to ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. So scripture tells us that glimpses of God's glory are displayed everywhere, in the heavens, on earth, in each other. And at times, we see in scripture that God's glory is expressed locally, in particular ways that are particularly breathtaking or particularly inescapable. Like, there's no way around it. One example comes to mind is when God had rescued his people from slavery in Egypt, right? And he brings them out into the desert and God shows up, his presence shows up as what? A pillar, a cloud, and a fire in the middle of that cloud. And the writer of Exodus would tell us that it was God's glory that was present, somewhat veiled in that. Again, you can't, we, can't, we don't have the capacity for all of his glory, but he was present there. And here's what the writer of Exodus wants us to know. God's glory was present to protect his kids. Like the full weight of who God was in his glory, that's glory, right? The full weight of who dad is was present with his people in the wilderness for their good. 
He protected them from the Egyptian army. They would have been destroyed. So he protects them. They had no source of food. He feeds them. They had no way to navigate, right? He led them. He led them. He protected them. He led them and he fed them. Guys, listen, God's glory is always leveraged for the good of his kids. The full weight of who dad is at all times is leveraged for the good of his kids. It showed up in an unmistakable way for them. So much so that, you know, you know their leader's name, right? Who was it? Moses. Moses is like, I want some more of that. So Moses had a one-on-one meeting with God on a mountain. They had a little, like nobody else was there. So what did Moses, what would you ask? What did Moses ask? He's like, yo, that glory thing's a little bit veiled in the cloud. Can I just see it all? Can I see your glory? And how do you think God answered that? No, if you, you don't have the capacity, Moses, if you were to see all of my glory, you would die. You, you can't handle this. You would break. And so what he said was, see that big rock over there in the little cave in the rock? Go stand there. I'm gonna do you a favor and cover the mouth of the cave with my hand so you can't see anything. I'm gonna walk by it. And after I've passed by, I'm gonna allow you just one little peek and your mind is gonna be blown. But that's all you can handle. And that's what he did for Moses in that moment. So a very good question. And then his life is shaped by that encounter from that point forward. So a good question for us then becomes, how do we know when we have seen God's glory displayed? Like, what should I be looking, what, what are the evidence, besides somebody just saying like, hey, I've seen God's glory, what does that actually look like in life? Here's a really good, really good example. In 2 Chronicles 7.3, um, it says this, of people who encountered God's glory. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, look at this, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement. I love how that sentence just keeps going because the writer of scripture could have just said, they bowed down, but it doesn't stop there. Like he's, he's making a point. They bowed down with their faces, faces into the ground, like all the way down, eyes are covered not just the ground, the pavement, right? Like it's just description, description, action, action, after description, the author's making a point. God's glory is overwhelmingly life-shaping. It will elicit a response. So they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped. It reorients worship off of myself. I'm not awe-inspired by myself. I don't live in fear of my circumstances. I'm now in awe of this glorious, this infinitely excellent and beautiful and strong God who brings all of his glory to bear for my good as his kid. I say that, that's what worship is. I say what's true of God. That's, I ascribe worship um, worth and my life is shaped by it. How's my life shaped by it? Thanks. Gratitude is cultivated in my heart when I really see God's glory. Um, I give thanks to the Lord for very specific things. What? He's good. He's a good father and his steadfast love endures forever. Guys, when we have just seen a glimpse of God's glory and that glory begins to shape my life, this is the pattern that will be shaped in my life. There's not another pattern. You don't get a unique expression, right? It's, this is common for all of us as God's kids. Bowing down with their faces to the ground, worship a heart reoriented on the father, a heart that expresses thanks in the good times and the bad. Why? Because dad is good and his steadfast love endures forever. And whenever he is present, the full weight of his presence, his glory is leveraged for my good. 
That should make us glad. It's not just this academic exercise we're doing. And that's why Edwards, Jonathan Edwards would say, God is glorified not only by his glories being seen, but by its being rejoiced in. The Father wants our hearts to rejoice in his glory, in his beauty, in his strength. He brings all of it to bear for our good. We can rejoice in that. So I guess the question then for us becomes, am I a rejoicing son? Are you a rejoicing daughter? If, glory, if God's glory is everywhere, like scripture says it is, and if we have seen particular expressions of his glory in Jesus, am I a rejoicing son? Is gratitude coming from my heart? Do, am I daily recognizing that he is good and that he loves me and his steadfast love endures forever? If I've been created for this, am I a rejoicing son? And if I am not a rejoicing son, or if my rejoicing is really weak, what's wrong with my heart? What's wrong with my eyes that I don't see? And that's what the storyline of scripture tells us about in glory exchanged. The storyline of scripture tells us about a tragic glory exchange that took place. Here are a couple examples. Psalm 106 says that God's people exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. Like, oh, that sounds like a one for one. They forgot, their, they forgot God, their savior, who had done great things in Egypt. See, it sounds really stupid, honestly, like glory of God for an ox that eats grass, or like that would never be me. But then he clarifies in the next sentence what's going on. We all do that when we forget God. When we forget God's glory, we, we will be ascribing worth to someone or something. It's going somewhere. We forget God who had done great things for us. Jeremiah writes about it. He said, has a nation changed its gods even though there are no other gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens. The heavens should be appalled because why do they exist? They exist to declare God's glory and it's obvious. So when we just turn a blind eye to that, that evidencing of glory, the heavens should be appalled. And he says, be shocked and be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. Paul writes about this in Romans chapter one. See, here you go. You want Romans. We'll give some Romans. But you're like, no, that's not enough Romans, John. We want the whole book. Paul says, people exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And you're like, no, I haven't. No, I wouldn't. I've not done that and I wouldn't. But Paul goes on as he unfolds this argument in the book of Romans and he says what? He says, all have sinned and what? So are sinning and falling short of the glory two different things? It almost sounds like Paul's, like you're all sinners. Oh, and you fell short of the glory of God. No, this is Paul's way of saying your primary act of rebellion is precisely falling short of the glory of God. Now, we've normally heard this explained as God is perfect. And in my inability to live a perfectly moral and good life, I fall short of his glory. Now, that idea is wrapped up in, in this verse, but that is not the primary or only meaning. It's not just that I'm not morally perfect. The real sense of it is God is absolutely glorious. And what am I created to be? Who am I? I am a God glorifier. That's my created purpose. So when he says we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, he's saying there has not been a single day in my life for John Ransom that he has lived up to his created purpose and actually displayed God's glory like it should be displayed or enjoyed God's glory like it should be enjoyed or found life in God's glory like we should find life. 
That's my rebellion. That's my falling short. I fail to glorify my father. And there's right judgment for this exchange. Paul goes on in Romans to say that in that same chapter, the very thing that we trade for, that alleged one for one, whatever I pursue in place of my father, my heart is actually given over to that thing in judgment. And so I pursue glory, 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 but there's none there. There's no life there. It's just death, but that's part of my judgment. And Paul would write that the wages of my sin, the wages or the, uh, the paycheck that I get for failing to glorify my father is actually death not just an eternal death and not just a physical death at the end of my life, but a death while I'm living. Because if, if I'm created to glorify God and, and that's, that's life glorifying the Father, then if I've not answered Twain's question appropriately, like if I'm still searching for that why, I'm not actually living to the purpose for which God created me. So that's not life, it's just death while I'm living. It's the wages of my sin, my failure to glorify the Father. And if you, believe, if you can believe it, it actually goes from bad to worse. Our sight is affected. So all of that screaming that the heavens are doing and all of the, the glory that's being evidenced in the earth and in, and in the lives of other people, I actually lose the ability to see God's glory in that. And to be honest with you, that's, that is the primary reason why our, why our own country, our own nation is where we're at in the conversation of abortion. Um, because we have lost the ability to see that God's glory is evidenced in every life, at every life stage. That's really the root behind the conversation and why we are at the place that we are now. Our sight goes bad. It goes really bad. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. What is the light of the gospel? The glory of Christ who is the image of God. Paul's saying a couple things. First, Twain's second most important day for me will never be realized. I will go from birth to death, cradle to grave without answering that question if it is not inseparably connected to God's glory. No answer for the why unless somebody acts on my behalf for my good from the outside in. I'm not going to come up with this. I'm blinded to this reality. And that's where we transition into glory embodied. Jesus is the embodiment of all of God's glory. In mercy, he comes to us rather than just condemning us. John would write this, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word being Jesus. He became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus brings glory to us precisely because we can't and we won't go to where the glory is. So he comes to us. And the writer of Hebrews would say it this way, he, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The writer of Hebrews is saying Jesus is God. He has all the glory and he brings that glory to us. But the other thing I love about this verse is this is kind of like when you try to capture a picture of the sky or the sun with your iPhone to try to share that glory a little bit. That's Hebrews 1.3. Look what he says. Here's a little like glimpse of Jesus' glory, but it falls short a little bit. It says, Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. Just close your eyes for a minute. 
Jesus holds up this spinning globe that you live on by the word of his power. That's an attempted picture to capture just a little bit of Jesus' glory. That's mind-blowing. Jesus is God. He has all the glory. The writer of uh, John, in John's gospel, John goes on. He says, no one has ever seen God. Right? Moses didn't get to see. Moses was hidden so he wouldn't be destroyed. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at, who, the only God who is at the Father's side. Who is that? Jesus. He has made him known. Jesus makes the Father known to us. Jesus makes the Father's glory known to us. Jesus answers for us Twain's concern, the second question that we are created to be a God glorifier. That is why I exist, but I wouldn't know it if it wasn't for Jesus. For God who said, this is Paul in 2 Corinthians, he writes, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You know what's insane about that verse? What's he referring to in the first half? What activity is going on there? Creation, yeah, good job, creation. It took the same power, the same effort, the same God speaking into existence, something that wasn't there, the same way he called light into existence at creation. It took that same effort to shine just a little bit of light into my dark heart and to awaken my heart to his beauty and his kindness and his excellence and to awaken my heart to the reality that I wasn't created for myself. I was created for him. Guys, God is so kind to you. He is so kind to us. He didn't have to speak this into our hearts. He could have allowed us to remain in this darkness, but he did not. I love when people write about Jesus as the high and humble king. One of you in here, Liz, actually, during the Advent series, you told me to check out a song right by that title, High and Humble King. What's the group's name? Sorry to put you on the spot, because you all should check it out. The vocalizer is Hillary. Yeah. All right. You guys should check that, that, that song out, High and, humble, High and Humble King. Jesus is the High and Humble King. He has all the glory. He's the one we should be glorifying. We exist for him. We exist because of him, through him, for him. But how does Paul write about him in Philippians? Jesus, though he was in the form of God, meaning he is God, not, not that he was like God, but he, he is God. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Glory embodied in full by Jesus, the one we exist to glorify. And he doesn't just embody, he comes to us so that we can share in this experience of glory. But guys, look, if you're going to read one of the Gospels while we're in this glory series for the next three weeks, please read John. Like if John had to have a sign, or if John was in charge of naming his Gospel, which we just named it for him, like Gospel according to John, really lame, we should try again. It's really about God's glory, like glory is John's theme. It's all over the place. So please read John. Man, so John gives us these amazing glimpses of God's glory. So you would kind of, we've come to expect like this hyper-religious, hyper-spiritualized, super churchy glory thing. Like even that word is just kind of weird because we don't really, right? It, it's just, it's a little off. But listen, 
There was nothing hyper-religious about this. There is nothing that is hyper-spiritualized, zen-induced, transcendental, meditative state about this. In fact, Jesus didn't even come and build a temple and say, come here to see my glory. Jesus didn't come and hold a revival and say, participate in this so you can see my glory. He didn't lead a protest and there were no bullhorns. What did Jesus do? If you've read John's gospel, where is the first place that Jesus goes and allows people to see just a little bit of his glory? What, what's the story? A wedding in a little nameless town called Cana at a wedding party where Jesus turns water into wine. And John tells us this, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. What did he do at the wedding? They'd used up their wine. The party was lame. He created amazing wine and it blew everybody away because it was better than any wine they ever had. And they were supposed to serve that up front. And then when people lose their discernment a little bit, you throw the Walmart wine in there, the seven day wine in there. But that's not what happened. Jesus gave them the best. He gave them life. And he used that moment to display, to evidence, just a glimpse of his glory. And it says, in that moment, his disciples believed in him. What does that story tell us? There's so much there. But right off the bat, John is saying, Jesus is coming, and he's coming to your nameless town, and he's coming to your lifeless wedding party. Like, if we wanted to push this wedding story a little bit, it's the perfect metaphor for our life. It is the perfect glory exchange story. We pursue some cheap wine up front. We exchange the one for one, and then you have nothing left. It's a lifeless party with no joy and no exuberance. And Jesus rolls in, he comes to you, and he gives this, this life to you. He opens eyes. He says, I'm coming. I'm coming to your town. I'm coming to your party. I'm coming to open your eyes. I will show you who I am, even though your eyes have been blinded, and I will show you what you were created for. And man, John's gospel, we learned Jesus traveled thousands of miles of dusty roads, going to all these nameless farming and fishing villages and staying in open fields and going to big cities full of people who had all exchanged a one-for-one and were pursuing their own glory rather than his. And he would give them a glimpse of who he was and he would open their eyes and he would bring life to them. But he brought his glory into the ordinary everyday moments. We have to see that. And he hasn't stopped. Jesus is coming towards you now in your ordinary, man, so many different religions will say, you need to give this up. You need to go to this mountaintop. You need to go to this geographical location. You need to do all these things. No, the gospel says Jesus is coming to you and he will speak this life into your soul. So all through John, we see his glory displayed, but it is displayed most clearly at the cross. In fact, we see this sentence in John 12, 23, the hour has come for the son of man to be really glorified. Like we've had glimpses of his glory all through John, but now at the cross, we learn this is the moment where Jesus will be most glorified. So John takes us from Cana to the cross. And in Cana, Jesus turns water into wine for a bride and groom, life-giving wine for the lifeless wedding party. And at the cross, Jesus' blood like wine poured out by a groom for his bride, life-giving wine for his lifeless people. That's what Jesus did for us at the cross. And that's why he was most glorified there because here's the one we exist to glorify. And he sets that aside and actually goes to the cross. Guys, listen to this word, for your glorification. 
What? Reverse roles. That's Jesus' mercy. That's the Father's mercy towards you in Jesus. Stunning. So let's take a couple, let's take a few moments to get a few takeaways from this before we, before we press out. We just have to start with Jesus. Like we have to start with Jesus. Jesus shows us how to live a life of glorifying the Father. Here, John 12, 28 is Jesus' daily prayer. Father, glorify your name in me. Father, glorify your name in me. He shows us how, but he doesn't just show us how. He shows up and he shows us what. Like he answers Twain's question for us. Isaiah 43, 7, we read this. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and I made. So let's walk that backward. Why did God form you and make you? For his glory. Why, why did God create you? For his glory. And your pursuit of his glory is your greatest good. Jesus shows us. He doesn't just show us though. Like Christianity is not just about Jesus showing us a better way. Jesus was also our substitute. He substituted himself for me. Because the reality is John Ransom has not lived one perfect day as a God glorifier. Not one. But Jesus did. And then in my place, the very one I should have been glorifying actually took all, of my, all the condemnation I deserve for my failure and inability to glorify the Father. He substitutes himself for me and his perfect life is counted towards my righteousness and his perfect substitutionary death takes the weight of all of that condemnation. And then Jesus shares with us this glory. In John 17, John says that the glory, Jesus says, the glory that you have given me, talking to the Father, I have given to them, to my people, that may, they may be one even as we are one. Guys, just let that sink in for a minute. All this glory, we're talking about God, the Father, and His Son. He doesn't just embody this glory for us so we can see it at a distance. He actually comes to us, to our lifeless party. He rescues us and then he brings us in so we can share in this beauty and in this excellence. And that is life giving for us. And we will walk that out over the next couple of weeks. But the G Jesus sends the spirit to us so that we can see and enjoy and live into his purpose for us. God's glory has to affect how I see other people too. Somebody has said this, they say the beauty and dignity we have reflect God's glory manifest in us. Why does anybody have dignity? Because God's glory is stamped deep in their soul. That's it. That is the primary reason. Why does anybody have beauty or any dignity? It's because we have all been created to reflect God's glory. So every one of us are in a relationship where we are really struggling with another person and it is exceptionally difficult to think well of them. Guys, God's glory has to reframe the whole conversation. We are talking about another person created in God's image and they have dignity that has been given to them by the Father simply because they are an image bearer. We have to view people this way and only the gospel reshaped this. And again, just honestly, this is, again, this is, this is at the root of all conversations of um, sanctity of life, not just unborn children, but any life stage. Can we euthanize old people or not? I mean, all of those questions are answered here in God's glory. All of them. So we look to Jesus. We see glory in its full there. It has to reframe the way we look at other people. And what about, what about me? What's some application for me? Stephen Nichols wrote this. He said, the glory of God is the compass that keeps my life oriented in the right direction toward God 
and not toward myself. He writes, the pull in the opposite direction is so strong that the psalmist repeats this prayer, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name, give glory. That's Psalm 115.1. Would you do me a favor? Oh, that was the other thing I was supposed to tell you. You know Romans 5, what we were reading together at the beginning of the service? We got two more weeks and we're gonna recite that bad boy with no visual aid. It'll be a glorious moment. All right, in addition to already agreeing to that, which you all have done by proxy anyway, right? In case you didn't get the memo, that's what we're doing, two more weeks. Um, would you agree to pray this with me? This Psalm, Psalm 115.1, pray it for yourself, pray it for your family, pray it for me, pray it for our church family, not to us, O Lord, not to us but to your name give glory. God's glory answers the question as to why we exist as a church family. Habakkuk 2.14 says, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You know how God's gonna do that? Through his people. So the, the, the reality is he's going to do it. Whether we participate in that activity or not, his glory will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. Everybody will know whether we participate or not, but we get to participate in that, which is beautiful because that's what we're created for and that's life and joy for us to turn from our own pursuit of self-glory and to live for his glory for the good of other people. So let's wrap it with this. You know, those, uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism that we referenced a little while ago, how many of you had heard of that before? Probably a minority, right? Hey, not too bad, not too bad. Well, if you're from Scotland and you're Presbyterian, like your birth certificate actually starts with a Westminster Shorter Catechism. Like it's all one document. They just love it, right? They love it. And there was an old expression in that community with the Scots. Um, they would say this, they would say this, I own the confession. I told you it was part of their birth certificate. I own the confession. But by that, they meant that they had made its doctrine their own and that they had taken the content to heart and that they saw that it indeed was an accurate reflection of the teaching of Scripture. Now, let me just step back a minute and say this. I don't care if you own the Westminster Shorter Catechism. They did a good job. It does accurately reflect the gospel, and it's a great tool to help yourself become familiar. But I don't care about that. I care that you own Jesus, and that you own his gospel, and that you own passages like Romans 5, 1 to 5. Like, own that. But let me ask you this. That first question, what is, let's, let's personalize it. What is the chief end of John Ransom? I exist to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Have you owned that? Like, have, have you owned that? What would it look like for you to own that today? To own it, to make it your own, what would that look like? Like Twain said, the two most important days in your life are the day you were born and the day you find out why God in his kindness tells us why. We exist for his glory and all of his glory is brought to bear for our good. Today can actually be that second day for you. You can own it today. You can own the beautiful reality that you were created for God's glory. And let me just close with this confession. Because there's a lot of pressure with that. Like, oh, I didn't, I didn't know as a Christian that's what I was supposed to. So that's what I say now. Like, that's how I answer that question. Like, I exist for God's glory, right? Um, is that the right answer? Jesus, Jesus, right? The Sunday school answer. There's a danger there. But here's the other danger is just like, oh, I'm a Christian. I know I exist for God's glory. And because I know it, like that's what I do. Like I perfectly, guys, look, 
This church is not a collection of people who kill it at living for God's glory. This church is actually a family made up of people who do a really bad job, a really inconsistent job at living for God's glory day in and day out. This church is made up of a bunch of people. What's that compass quote we had a little while ago? That pull is so strong in the opposite direction that I need all of God's grace every day for this. So here's, this is just John Ransom's confession. I barely know what it means to live for God's glory, okay? I barely know it. I barely know God's glory. Like, I only have glimpses of who he is in all his glory, okay? Got it, but I get he's glorious. I understand I'm supposed to live for his glory, but I barely know what that means. But here's the sobering thing. Those little pieces that I know, like the implications that has for my life, like, okay, I live for God's glory as a husband, as a dad, as this, I'm really bad at all of those things. I'm really bad. You know what I'm really good at? John Ransom's glory, right? John Ransom's fame. That's what I'm good at. That's the pull of my heart. But we need, so we need to own that. But I, I just need you to know the gospel gives you the freedom to confess that and own it. And with us as a family, let's pray that psalm that God would cultivate in us this desire to live for his own glory and that we would grow in that capacity together. But you need to know this about this family. This is the space that we have to confess all of our shortcomings and inabilities and tendencies not to live well for the Father's glory. But that's part of his glory, that he would keep us as his kids anyway. It's amazing. So over the next two weeks in this series, we're gonna walk that out together. So don't be fearful and just know that you're in really good company. There is not a single person in here who's killing it as it relates to living for God's glory. We're all in preschool. We're just learning this language and we're learning how to live this way and it's not in our own strength. It's all God's grace. It's all the work of his spirit and that's what being a part of a family is all about, right? We're gonna do this together. We're gonna own it together and we're gonna grow together and we're gonna have a ton of grace for each other. Good, can we do that? All right, let's do that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for pursuing us, for showing us your glory and for sending Jesus Father, incline our hearts to live for your fame, to make much of you. Help us to see life and joy there, not burden, not weight, not, not, not some burden that we can't bear, but a life-giving command. Father, give us your strength through your spirit. And as we pursue your fame for the good of other people, I pray that you would just pour out grace and life into this young family. And Father, for the people on the fringes of our community, as they see a very imperfect, very messy, very grace-needy family increasingly shaped by your glory, may you use that as a shining light in a dark community that people would see you for who you are as a good father, and they, they would be increasingly drawn to you because of your glory at work in us, Father. Please work this in us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.